0: It's the Newton's Lab Podcast, number two! In this episode, we'll talk about what a religion is and why you can't believe everything you read online. We'll talk about some major beliefs around the world and what happens when people treat science as a religion. We'll also cover a little bit about fictional dinosaurs, broken mouse traps, and bacteria tales. Then we'll wrap up with some thoughts about some popular arguments for intelligent design. All this and more is coming up right around the corner on the Newton's Lab podcast. second episode of the Newton's Lab podcast, I'm your host, Troy Eckhart. In the last podcast, I mentioned that some people go too far with their science and turn it into a religion. I want to expand on that idea a little bit to help you see what I mean and to help you build your own faith. Let's begin with a discussion of what a religion is. If you were to go to Google and search for a definition, you could be led astray. Many online sources mention a god in their definition of a religion. It's true that many religions have at their centers a figure who taught the precepts of that religion, and very often this figure claimed to be a god or to speak for a god. I'm sure you know about many of these gods and the religion that has each of them at its center. You probably know that the god of Islam is called Allah. The god of Judaism is called Yahweh. The chief god of ancient Norsemen was Thor. The ancient Greek gods were headed up by Zeus up on Mount Olympus. But can you name the god of Buddhism? Did you say Buddha? Sorry, but it's not the Buddha. The Buddha was a guy named Siddhartha Gautama. The word Buddha means enlightened one in Sanskrit, and Siddhartha is regarded by most Buddhists as the supreme enlightened one of our age. That means there are other Buddhas, and other supreme Buddhas from other ages. Siddhartha himself never claimed to be a god. In fact, he said that to be Buddhist, it was not necessary to believe in any gods. Today there are many Buddhists from several schools of Buddhism who do not believe in a god. Yet, they are considered to be adherents to a religion called Buddhism. So it's not necessary to have a god at the center of a religion. So what is the definition of a religion? At its most basic level, a religion is a set of beliefs Not just any beliefs, but beliefs about the universe. Specifically, a religion is an attempt to explain how the universe came to exist, how it works, and why it's here. Often, this set of beliefs includes a god. Even more often, it includes a set of rules about how people should live. In other words, a set of morals. I have mentioned that some people treat science as a religion, and you can see how I can say so once you understand that religion is a set of beliefs about the universe. What comes to your mind right away are probably the theories about the origins of the universe. At least that's what comes to my mind when I begin to ponder how science has become a religion. I think about what some people call origin myths. Things like how God created most of everything and then finished up with his most wonderful creations, Adam and Eve, and set them in a garden. Yes, you are probably insulted when someone calls the creation story that you know and love a myth. It insults me too, because the word myth carries a connotation of being false. Even though that's not what it really means, that's how we use it. It's funny how a person will call others' beliefs a myth, but not his own. I believe that biblical creation story, but I'm just trying to be fair by calling it a myth. I believe it by faith, not by what I've observed. My favorite false origin myth, though, is not often regarded as a myth, because GREAT great MEN OF science of science SCIENCE believe it. It's that old story of how one day the god of nothingness, I call him Nihilo, created everything out of nothing Then all of that matter in the universe came together in a tiny little space, with a huge amount of energy, and then exploded into all the whirling fragments we are now familiar with today. Maybe this happened twice. Maybe it happened three times. Maybe it happened 800 million times. Who knows? Of course, my point is, as I said last week, Both of these stories should have equal weight under the banner of so-called empirical science because the origin of the universe was not observed by us. Therefore, it could not be measured, and it certainly can't be repeated. Why in the world could one so-called myth have any more weight than another? I guess that's not really a fair question for me to ask, though, because I myself believe one of those theories and not the other. I'm sure you're just dying to know why, so we'll get into more of that later. Have you ever heard of Michael Crichton? He was an American medical doctor who became an author and then a movie writer and a producer. Maybe even read some of his books, or cheated and watched some of his movies. He wrote things like The Andromeda Strain. Have you heard of that? How about Congo? No? Well, maybe you've heard of some of his lesser known stuff, like Jurassic Park and The Lost World. Maybe you've seen the TV show E.R. Yeah, I thought you might have at least been familiar with some of his work. Anyway, the guy was a really smart man. He wrote good science fiction, and he always backed it up with the science he learned in medical school. He was also not a Christian, as far as I know. He believed in evolution. As you know if you saw and paid any attention to the Jurassic Park movie, besides just watching those really cool dinosaurs roaming around, eating people, munching on leaves, man that was awesome. Anyway, Michael Crichton was no dummy, and I want to tell you a little bit about what he saw as a science being treated as a religion. Keep in mind that he commented on these things as a non-Christian, or at best, a very non-fundamentalist, not very outspoken Christian, if he was one at all. In an essay that was not very popular with a lot of scientists, Michael Crichton told the world that he believed one of the most powerful religions in the Western world is environmentalism, that it is the religion of choice for modern urban atheists. He pointed out that it's full of myths, and that it mimics the Christian myths almost perfectly. He said that environmentalists believe that there was an initial beautiful earth where everything was wonderful and clean, just like the Garden of Eden. There's a fall from this perfection through pollution as a result of the knowledge we gained through the Industrial Revolution, just as eating from the tree of knowledge caused Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden. Now the environmentalists believe that there's a day of judgment coming for all of us because of our actions. We are all energy sinners, doomed to die unless we seek salvation. The Christian salvation is through Jesus, but the environmentalists' salvation is through something called sustainability. Michael Crichton also said that he would not try to talk an environmentalist out of his beliefs for the same reason that he would not try to talk a Christian out of his He knows he couldn't because those beliefs are issues of faith, not facts that can be argued. Michael Crichton went on to say that he thought maybe the urge to worship something is built into humans, and that could be the reason why a lot of people treat environmentalism as a religion. I don't know if he knew it or not, but that idea comes right out of the book of Romans in the Bible, in chapter 1, in which Paul tells us that every man is born knowing that there is a God but that when they knew him, they refused to glorify him as God. They claim to be wise and become fools. Then they begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. This is exactly what is going on with men who treat science as a religion. I find it really strange just how much environmentalism is like neo-paganism or Wicca or other earth-worshipping religions as well. I especially detest how those deities are permitted in popular culture, but that our deity is not. For example, the weatherman on TV often gives his report, and then half-jokingly says something like, Mother Nature's sure going to let us have it. Maybe I shouldn't let it bother me, but it does. It bothers me because there are really people who really do worship Mother Nature. Apparently there are lots of them in the environmentalist movement. What would happen if the weatherman were to say, So be ready for some heavy rain this weekend, folks. The Lord God is sure going to let us have it. The phone lines at the station would be lit up for weeks. Why? Why is Mother Nature okay, but the Lord God not? If they're both just pretend creatures, it shouldn't matter. The problem is, they're not both pretend creatures, and everyone knows it somewhere in their being. Some acknowledge it, and some repress it. But the knowledge that God exists is in there. Earlier I mentioned that I would tell you why I believe one origin myth and not the other, or any of the others. Remember, none of the origin theories are based on empirical science because nobody saw the beginning of the universe. At least no mortal man saw it. There's evidence that leads to guesses, though, and I choose to believe a particular set of guesses because they make more sense to me than the others. Some might argue that I'm biased because I come to the table already believing in God, Therefore, I naturally believe the Bible, and I let that disturb the purity of my science. I can say the same of them. They come to the table already compromised by their refusal to believe in God. Therefore, they are closed-minded to a possible explanation before any rational thought can even take place. I want to point out for you a few of the reasons I believe in the supernatural creation of the universe instead of the natural explanations given by most modern scientists. The first proof I'd like to give is called Irreducible Complexity. This is a concept that was popularized by a professor named Michael Behe around 1992 through his book called Darwin's Black Box. You should know that Dr. Behe does not deny that humans evolved from lesser animals, so he is not a biblical creationist. I have specifically mentioned two men now who are not biblical creationists to illustrate that you and I and people like us are not wackos who cannot agree with anything said by great great men of of science. science. Irreducible complexity means just what it sounds like. Something is so complex that it cannot be reduced to individual parts that by themselves have any meaning. Take a mouse trap as the classic example. A mouse trap has six parts. The wooden base, the spring, the hammer, the trigger, the bar, and the staples that hold it all together. I made some of those words up but if you've ever seen a mousetrap you know what I'm talking about. By themselves these parts have no meaning. Sure, you could use the spring as a tie clip, or the bar as a toothpick. Some atheists like to bring that up to try to discount irreducible complexity, because it really threatens them. The real question isn't whether you can find a use for these tiny parts, but whether these parts are sold individually in the hardware stores. These pieces are too small and too useless by themselves to be sold. Now let's imagine that we want to form an opinion about whether this mousetrap was created or whether it evolved. If it was created, then a creator made all of the pieces and fit them together in just the right way to make it all work. If it evolved, then each individual piece evolved independent of each other and sat around with no purpose for millions of years until through trial and error and lots of discarded parts, all of the right parts came together in the right place at the right time to make a mousetrap. Of course, we're not really talking about a mousetrap here, are we? No, we're talking about very specialized parts of living organisms, such as the flagellum on the back of a bacterium. This is one of the examples given by Dr. Behe in his book. The flagellum is a whip-like tail on the back of some kinds of bacteria. It spins like a little motorboat prop, pushing the bacterium forward. The rate of spin can be over 1,000 times per second in some species. The flagellum is made up of a few parts. Most notable are the actual tail-like piece and a small rotor and a molecular motor. All of these parts are on a creature which is too small to be seen without a microscope, so the individual parts are even tinier still. As with the mousetrap, none of the pieces are of any use to the bacterium by itself. You'll find a great deal of resistance on the internet claiming that GREAT great MEN OF of SCIENCE science. science. don't buy the irreducible complexity argument, and there are tons of reasons they give for dismissing it. They say things about mousetraps really going through evolution because we keep making them better, but the problem is, We don't make them better through random chance, we make them better through intelligent design. They argue that the proteins in the flagellum of E. coli, for example, also do some other jobs, like helping to spread the bacteria's poisons, but that's speculative and a pretty thinly disguised attempt to discredit the theory of irreducible complexity at any cost. It's pretty important to note that no creationist has ever said that a system in an organism must have been designed just because it has parts. What they do claim is that a system that has not been completed cannot be available for natural selection to select and it is therefore not evolvable. This is the spirit behind irreducible complexity. It does not prove creation but it goes a long way toward casting a shadow of doubt on evolution through natural selection. Another reason for my belief in the creation of the universe by God is called specified complexity. Life is both specific and complex. The best way to explain what that means is to look at the alphabet. The letter A is specific, but it's not complicated. A random string of fifty letters is complex, but it's not specific. A poem is both specific and complex. There are many examples of complexity in nature, as well as many examples of specificity, but the sequence of DNA that produces each type of life is extremely complex and specific. As the old saying goes, you would get the works of Shakespeare from an infinite number of monkeys pounding on an infinite number of typewriters for all of eternity sooner than you would get the DNA sequences for the rich diversity of life on Earth. In truth, Human DNA would have a fair chance of being randomly put together every one try in one times ten to the fortieth power, that is, if evolution used the right game pieces to begin with. Noted atheist Richard Dawkins, who would argue that grass is purple if a Christian said it was green, gets around these insurmountable odds by claiming the existence of some sort of evolutionary algorithms, these things might explain the random generation of human DNA, except for the fact that the algorithms themselves are more complex than the DNA is. So what came up with the algorithms? Another reason I choose to believe in the creation of creation and not the evolution of evolution is because of something called the second law of thermodynamics. To explain it simply, this law has to do with energy and work, It's very easy to understand if you think of it this way. Energy does work by moving from one place to another. In fact, the term thermodynamics comes from two root words, thermo meaning heat and dynamic meaning power. This heat moves from where there is a lot of it to where there is a little of it. Think of a battery. It does work when you connect a wire from one terminal to the other. Electrons flow from the negative side, where there are a lot of them, to the positive side where there are few of them. The work done is in heating up the wire. We could stick a light bulb in the circuit and get light energy out, or we could put a motor in the circuit and get mechanical energy out. When the electrons are evened out in the two sides of the battery, though, we say that the potential to do work is gone. In other words, the battery is dead. The universe is a big battery, or better said, zillions of batteries. Energy is stored up in various places, usually in the form of heat. As it moves to places where there is less energy, it does work, and it discharges the battery a little bit. When all of the batteries are dead and energy is evened out all over the universe, scientists generally call that the heat death of the universe. It's like the worst bad day you can imagine, only worse. The second law of thermodynamics also deals with something called entropy, Entropy is just chaos or a lack of order. The law states that everything tends toward chaos unless some energy is moved into the system to create or restore order. We see entropy all around us. Imagine the maintenance required to keep your house in good repair. Now imagine what the house would look like if you moved away for five years, forgetting to ask someone to care for the house, and then you came back to move back in there would be dust everywhere rodents and bugs would have eaten a lot of the structure of the house there might be water damage from a leaky roof or broken windows a tree might be growing next to the house and breaking the foundation with enough time there would be trees growing through the house everything is subject to entropy because everything rots, degrades, decays and fades away unless energy is put into the system from outside in just the right way You could add energy to your neglected house by pouring gasoline on it and throwing a match, but that would not repair it. You must put in the right type of energy, and in the right way. On this earth, we see some examples of self-repairing systems, such as trees growing from roots, or our own wounds healing. But we see no systems that improve themselves by doing anything other than a sort of replication. When you scratch your arm, you do not grow an eyeball there. You grow more arm skin there. You don't even grow eyelid skin, or bottom of the foot skin, or some of the more sensitive types of skin, if you know what I mean. You grow arm skin. A tree's roots, which have been left in the ground after the trunk is cut off, will grow more trunks like the one that was removed. It will not grow a different type of tree. Evolutionists, though, want us to believe that evolution occurred through random genetic mutations. In the process, the bad mutations resulted in the death of the organism, and the really good mutations resulted in an organism that was so good it starved out the others who didn't get the mutation. Sooner or later this resulted in a whole new species, and by some great miracle, both sexes of the new species evolved on the same beach at the same time and began to reproduce. This would be a wonderful fairy tale, if not for one terrible fact. We don't witness too many good mutations. In fact, most of them are terrible. They produce things like sickle cell anemia and leukemia. They produce tumors and malformations. Not one human has been formed with a new, good, innovative trait, like a poison that can be injected through fangs, or an eyeball on the right index finger, or the ability to walk through walls, or anything cool like that. Mutations are bad. They make things worse, not better, as far as we've ever observed. Now, evolutionists will say things like, Look at the beak on that bird! It evolved through mutations to be shaped like that, because eating the food on this island requires a beak like that! But he didn't witness the mutation. He just guessed that the beak was a product of evolutionary mutation. The mutations we've seen are terrible, not good. So in order for evolution to work, the second law of thermodynamics has to be broken. Entropy must be ignored. GREAT Great MEN OF SCIENCE science. 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 will tell you that the second law of thermodynamics only applies in closed systems. Which I guess means that they think evolution is possible on Earth because we can get energy from somewhere else, like the Sun, or maybe someplace outside of our solar system. Okay, sure. But we still don't see any good mutations, even with the sun pushing as much energy at us as it can, day and night, without end for a very long time. I think we need a little more than energy from a different system. We need a creator to mutate us perfectly. There are literally hundreds of proofs for the creator that I could tell you about, and I'm sure I will in the coming weeks. But for now, it's just about time to end this episode of the Newton's Lab podcast. I hope you found it worth your time to listen to. I look forward to hearing from you. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, remember to send some email to newton at newtonslab.com. Please register at the website and leave a few comments of encouragement or maybe even some constructive criticism. If you like the podcast, would you please tell a friend or two what you think and have them check it out as well? Until next time, remember to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself and beware of science falsely so called. I'm Troy Eckhart for Newton's Lab.